Welcome. The Daily Objective has been going on almost for two years. We've discussed many prominent intellectuals. We haven't discussed Thomas Sowell, who is an economist, but not only an economist. He's, you could call him a sociologist when the term still made sense. And today's episode is, uh, is about him. I'm with Mark. So, Mark, you suggested, I think, the episode on Thomas Sowell. So why, what made you think about it and why do you want to talk about it? <clears throat> well, I'm a total fangirl for Thomas Sowell. Um, I think if I were to meet him in person and thank dad, he is uh, still alive because uh, Walter Williams is no longer with us. Uh, he would be one of two people that would make me starstruck. Um, I think he is uh, oftentimes a prolific and lone voice for reason. And, and I say lone voice only in the sense that, of course, we're a voice for reason as well, but he has a slightly deeper reach than us because I think a lot of conservatives uh, more or less uh, <clears throat> listen to him. And despite the fact that he's sort of outside academic community, I think he has a wide readership and and a wider access to uh, some intellectual circles and objectivists have. So he has a, a, a pretty wide influence and he's, he's grounded in reason and he, he's grounded in objective fact. And he seems to be guided by the desire to find the truth, not to confirm uh, an ideology or an agenda. As a result, his perspectives on things that uh, on, main, on mainstream perspectives with respect to racism and, and the uh, lasting effects of slavery and segregation um, are completely different, which is one of the reasons why he's, I think, rejected by most intellectuals on the left and doesn't have a mainstream following and hasn't influenced the mainstream culture as much as he should. But he has some great things to say about race relations, which I think is his primary focus in at least four of his books. Um, uh, Black, Red, Next, White, White Liberals is one of the most profound. The, the economics of uh, the politics and economics of race, which is another great book where he discusses these phenomenon, <clears throat> where he goes into great detail about about uh, about things that we think we have knowledge about, but really don't. Yeah, the, um, the unbelievable thing is that in all the discussions about race, it's as if Thomas Sowell's research doesn't exist because he has answered most of the issues that are talking points, but it's like no one, no one talks about him. So, But I have to ask, you said there are two people you'd be starstruck if you met. One is Thomas Sowell. Who is the second? Well, well, the other one I already met sort of indirectly, uh, and luckily he didn't see me fangirling him. It was Steve Perry, who was the lead singer of Journey. I just thought he had a voice like an angel. And in, in fact, his voice was so good, it intimidated me out of the uh, rock singing business because I was sort of in a band when I was about 19. And uh, I heard his voice and thought I can never attain that and I might as well quit. Not, not the subject of whiplash. Uh, uh, you know, if I, if I were that guy, I would have kept going and persevering and finding my own way. But um, his voice is just uh, so amazing. He, okay, that's, that's I didn't know. I didn't know you had also aspirations in. Uh, in <clears throat> see, we we learned something two years in the show. So I'm gonna give a, a short biographical introduction, <coughs> not in terms of stuff that you can find on Wikipedia, but in terms of stuff that are interesting, because Thomas Sowell has always been a slayer of false orthodoxies, and in a way, even his life is a testament to how. Every stereotype that we think about race 
or most of the stereotypes are wrong. Having said that, at the end, I will also mention what is my problem with Thomas Sowell and why I think, so you mentioned he has a big impact. I think his impact has a ceiling, has a limit. And I will explain why I see this. But first let's ask about, let's start about his life. <coughs> so he's born, he's born in the, before, he's, he's born around <coughs> the financial meltdown in the 30s. His father, is, uh, his, his father and mother are dead very soon after he's born. So he is an orphan. He's taken care of by relatives, none of whom has finished high school. And yet this is an environment that pushes him towards the idea that knowledge is important. So why is this interesting? Most of the times we hear about the impact of your environment, that you know, if you have things <coughs> staked against you, you're not going to do well in life. Thomas Sowell shows that this is not always the case and doesn't have to be the case. Also, can I just can I can I just interrupt? Unless uh, you may be mentioning this, but he was born in the Deep South. During, That's what I was going to say. Segregation, and when he moved with these other relatives, he moved to Harlem. So this gives him some very interesting perspectives with respect to um, the Deep South during the the worst phases of of uh, segregation and Harlem during where he can expose us to historical phases of that, that part of the city, which we're completely unfamiliar with. And as you said, back in the day, you could sleep in Harlem. First of all, whites and blacks would go out in Harlem and you could sleep when it was hot because there was no air conditions. People would sleep either in parks or in, how do you call in New York, these stairs that go out? The stoops, the, the stoops. Yes. Yes, again, things that today would be unimaginable. And why is this important? What we're constantly told about the difficulties in the black community is that they are a result of racism or the legacy, sorry, the legacy of racism and actually existing racism. And Thomas Sowell asked a question. <coughs> How is it that Harlem was a better place to live in the 30s than today? Was it that there was less racism in the 30s? Obviously not. So keep this, keep this somewhere in uh, keep this somewhere in mind. So then again, because he's a good student, he has passion for learning. As most intellectually curious young people, he's a Marxist because there's nothing else uh, to be offered around him. And fast forward, he also goes to the army in the 50s. Fast forward, he ends up having uh, he he ends up having as teachers in his <coughs> university, Friedman and Stiglitz. And which is also telling about Thomas Sowell, he finds the economics of Friedman convincing. But what he says changed him mostly is A, that he worked in the state sector. So he saw that the state doesn't work, but also something else which I found very, very interesting, a biographical note. He said, the thing with Friedman and by the way, people who had Friedman as a teacher said that he was ferocious, that you didn't want to be unprepared when you talk to Friedman. Whenever you would tell him something, Friedman would expect you to support it with evidence or to support it somehow. So your average Marxist BS wouldn't fly with Friedman. So the impact to Thomas Sowell was not that it changed his views, but the impact was that it made him try harder. It made him try to become in a way a better Marxist. And then, of course, he saw the limit that actually there is no such thing as a better Marxist because it's not a, it's not a, 
a theory that can stand up to scrutiny. So I found this very, very interesting that giving people a challenge is not as today we think patronizing or elitist, but it's actually <clears throat> helping them to be the best that they can be. Yeah, and I, I might I might just add this little caveat. Um, I'm friends with uh, John John Lott Jr., who I think is a fantastic economist and an expert on you know the effects of gun control on crime. <clears throat> and he took a class with Thomas Sowell at the University of Chicago on economics in economics in his economics uh, uh, series, and he said it was the hardest class he had ever taken in his life because. Sowell scrubbed that book, every single word of it, every single concept. You had to know backwards and forwards and like Friedman, give reasons for uh, why you thought what you thought. So he, he reflected Friedman's uh, teaching in his, own, in his own teaching, which is great. It forces you to reach up. And you mentioned the, your experience with Thomas Sowell. My experience was when I discovered Austrian economics, uh, I started, you know, you know how it's on YouTube. You get on the right thing, suggestions. And suggestions were also Friedman and Thomas Sowell. They're not Austrian, they're Chicago school, but also about the ideas of freedom. And I was still a Marxist, but I was captivated by, by him. And I remember back then I was, uh, I was living with, uh, with a girl who was very skeptical of any ideas, of my new ideas. So she didn't like my turn. But she was telling me, who is, this, who is this guy who is talking? Like, whenever he's talking, I have to listen. And this is the thing with Thomas Sowell. And also it shows the power of speaking with confidence and of assuming the authority that you know what you're talking about. How many intellectuals we see today who say, well, who can know anything? Or I don't know. Or my niece is uh, this. Uh, I can tell you about what happens if taxation goes 2% up. But beyond that, I don't know. No, Thomas Sowell knows. And this is, this is, I think, very, very powerful. On the one hand, you said he, he has facts and reason on his side, but also he <clears throat> assumes the responsibility of an intellectual. He assumes the responsibility of someone who knows. So he carries the title of the intellectual <clears throat> proudly. I also think he does something that most intellectuals can't do. He speaks in common language. He speaks in language that everyone can understand. Now, that doesn't mean he's speaking down to anybody. It means he knows his concepts so thoroughly that he can integrate them into easily understandable principles for anyone. That's a gift. That's, That's a, gift. a gift indeed. But also something <clears throat> that you can work on, and many intellectuals uh, unfortunately don't. So let's go to his work. We will focus today, I will focus today on his work on race. And... I have some suggestions. There's like one book per decade from the 80s, perhaps his most controversial book, uh, Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality, which asks one basic question. Has the position of Black people in the United States really become better after the Civil Rights Act, i.e. after political action to end racism and discrimination? Then in the 80s, he writes Race and Culture, which talks about racism in various parts of the world. And then in the 2000s, uh, sorry, this was not in the... So these books are uh, every 10, 15 years, let's say, he, he goes back the same thing. Uh, Intellectualness and Race, I think, from 2013. Having said that, 
Saul is 90. He's, he, he's intellectually active. He wrote something like, I don't know, more than three books in his 80s. So great stuff. So what are the three main themes in his work? What are the three dragons that he slays when it comes to orthodoxies that we falsely believe? First, that disparities necessarily mean that there is discrimination. Second, so for example, black people are doing not as good as white people, therefore there's discrimination against black people. Second dragon that he slays, that the solution to a group not doing as well as other group is political action. And the third thing is that if you disagree with these things, you're a racist. <clears throat> so these are three myths that he completely... But I think, I, can I add Can I add a fourth? Of course. That the pathologies that we see in, in, the, in the black community today are the, re, are the lasting effects of slavery. He exactly. completely slays that dragon. It's, the, it's perhaps the number one most important theme of his, uh, of his work. And I will link it with the first thing on what are the causes of groups not doing well. <coughs> Thomas Sol says, look, if it were discrimination, we'd expect to see two things. First, anywhere in the world, any group that is discriminated, they would be doing worse. Second, in periods of greater discrimination, the discriminated against group would, do, would be doing worse in various metrics. Thomas Sol says both of these things are not the case. Let's start with the first. He gives various examples. The Jews throughout history always thoroughly, strictly, directly discriminated against they do well. The Armenians, subject to, a, according to some people, genocide, they do well in Eastern Europe. Greeks in the Ottoman Empire, we were under the occupation of the Ottomans, they were literally skinning us alive. Greeks are doing better than Ottomans, than Turks themselves. And the examples go on. Chinese in Asia, in Asian countries. Thomas Sol says there have been cases of anti-Chinese pogroms that more Chinese were killed in like a month than blacks killed throughout the dark history of racism. And yet Chinese <clears> people <throat> are doing well. Or in the United States, Japanese American, subject to discrimination and yet subject to being confined in uh, camps during Second World War, yet oh. they're even outperforming the whites. So, also, I believe Japanese in Brazil and South America as well. Yeah, Japanese in South America. And actually, uh, he gives this interesting example that if, let's say, the Jews are doing better in the U.S. because the anti-sentiment, the anti-Jewish sentiment is less strong than the anti-Hispanic sentiment, how do you explain that Jews are doing better in Latin America, where the Hispanics are the, the majority? So this is the first, this is the first uh, uh, dragon that he slays. Now let's go to what you said, Mark. <coughs> what is to explain the fact that one group is <coughs> underperforming? And Thomas Sol says, mostly things that have nothing to do with discrimination. Things such as culture. So for example, I know we're not allowed to talk about these things today, but not all cultures are equal. Not all cultures are equally good for you. For example, let me talk about my own culture, Greece. Greece is a country where hard work is not seen as something good. Greece is a country that <clears throat> is seen as, if you get rich, you might have done something uh, 
nasty or you are basically you are you are a bad person is this a good culture for someone to be productive no so what you need to do is you have to somehow escape it either physically or say i don't like these elements from my culture and he says that there are many things in black culture that are not to the benefit of black people and the examples he gives examples such as a gangster rap and things and things like that but can i can i just say uh, tell me if i'm stepping on your toes or or uh, or taking away the punctuation point of this many of a lot of those aspects of the culture from the 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 eubonics element uh to uh the honor culture of of pride uh, and the violence and promiscuity are actually imports from white culture from white redneck culture that existed in England and trans what came across the pond and transplanted itself prim- from from a few villages in England a very very specific villages that transplanted themselves in the south and then disseminated that culture throughout the south exactly <laughs> because now our leftist friend would say oh so you're a racist you're saying black culture is is not good Actually, the vast majority of the example Thomas Zoll gives is not from black culture. He talks, for example, about the Irish culture. He talks about how being heavily drunk was 50 times met more in the Irish in the United States than in the Jewish population. And he says, is there an excuse for that? Is it because of trauma or discrimination? Obviously not. So you see a tendency within that culture that is not a good predictor about how people in that culture will do. Another example he gives, early marriage, 50%, of course, he writes in the 80s, so these numbers might have changed, obviously have changed. 50% of Mexican-Americans, <coughs> 50% of these Mexican-Americans girls are married while they were a teen. What is the percentage in Japanese-Americans? 10%. Again, Thomas Sowell says, these cultural tendencies play a role. It's not this, he's in favor, of course, of the nuclear family, but obviously if you get married at 17, your professional prospects might be different from someone who gets married at 25 or 20 or 28. He brings also other factors. Geography is one, where you live, where you work. So basically what he's saying is there are things in your control or things that you can control, such as where you live, that have nothing to do with discrimination, but that will predict how a group will do. And again, he's not doing this also for the United <coughs> States, but particularly in race and culture, he collects data from all over the world. And uh, he makes the point of uh, how we can see similar tendencies. Yeah, he demonstrates that isolated cultures all over the world tend to be lagging cultures and cultures that have access to other You know, to, to extensive trade and 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 have more or less a diverse mix of folks tend tend to not be lagging cultures. Exactly. And he also he also made a point in in black rednecks and white liberals, which I thought was interesting, because another dragon he slays is you know that blacks are the bottom of the bell curve, that their natural IQs are naturally uh, lower than whites. This is something that I think uh, current racists, white racists use to sort of um, advance their narrative. But he talks about the Massachusetts schooling system uh, and orientation towards schooling. 
and uh, and how when blacks are educated within that system, we're equal to or better than than any whites. And he talked about you know Eastern European Jews coming into New York and and at first scoring low in IQ tests, and then of course once they become integrated into the culture, learn the language, and and uh, they they of course excel uh, beyond anybody else. So he slays that I, that that myth, which I think determinists like you know maybe a Sam Harris might even believe that your IQ is sort of a not just a ceiling but it's 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 a determiner of, of so many things in your in your personality and it's, it's beyond your control he definitely uh, he will definitely trigger also a ra- racist because as you said he says for example and I, I was I mean Greek races will be shocked with that the average IQ of Greek immigrants in the United States pre-World War II was below of the average IQ of a black person in the United States. But also, mm. let's talk about something more, less controversial than IQ, of which I know nothing, <coughs> by the way, which is edu- educational achievement. He says, how do you explain, if you believe that blacks are inferior by nature or whatever, how would you explain that black soldiers after World War II who stay in West Germany, get their higher education there, start a family there. They do, they score in tests way better than, the, than that same person would do if they were in the United States. Or black people who go to schools that are not among black peers. And again, nothing there that has to do with being black. He says the same thing happens in the United, in the United Kingdom with whites. He says there is a culture among the white working class that doesn't see achievement as good. And he brings the example of Theodore Derlimple, who was a physician slash also an intellectual. And he says that you would see kids being literally brought to hospital, injured from the beatings, white kids in English schools, because they were beaten for being good students. So when you incubate this intellectual atmosphere where achievement is frowned upon, then you will have these... Uh, these results. And very quickly to go to the second uh, myth, because uh, we don't have much uh, time, so then we'll skip to our to my criticism to Thomas Sol. Is political action the solution? And the answer is for Thomas Sol is no. And again, forget the black population. Which is the group in the United States that is mostly as a group represented in politics? The Irish. What are groups that are not represented a lot in politics? Germans, Chinese, Japan, Asian Americans. Which group is doing better? The groups that are not represented in politics. Which group is doing worse? The, 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 the people of Irish this, uh, heritage. Again, this is in the 80s. Or what was the effect of the Civil Rights Act? Let's see about things such as unemployment. Till 1930, which is important because which is one year before the introduction of a minimum of a federal minimum wage, black unemployment, according to the facts that he gives, is below white is below white unemployment. Put differently, as a percentage, more black people are in employment than white people, and the same was at the end of the 19th century. <clears throat> This changed after the 30s. Did discrimination become worse? No. So discrimination cannot explain uh, the problem that the black community face. One more thing, and then I'll throw it back to you, Mark. 
people, young people, young kids growing in families with two parents. During slavery, 70 to 80% of families were nuclear families. In the 60s, 78%. Today, something like 37%. So you see things that have absolutely nothing to do again with discrimination, in a way becoming worse, perhaps because of political intervention, because of this idea that you've been the subject of injustice in the past, so now you, you, uh, the state is going to take care for you. Do you want to say something more about uh, political intervention and the perils of uh, many people in the Black community? Yeah, I, th- no, I think Thomas Sowell says it eloquently by by demonstrating that it's it's the people who have sought economic well-being and the development of their characters who become wealthy within the culture and the people who have tried to get the results of economic well-being and the development of your character through the political mechanisms have winded up, of course, enriching a few folks um, who are at the top of the political ladder, but none of that trickles down to the to the poorer people. And I, I think that's a, that's a profound a profound analysis. And I think it started with the very beginning of the civil rights movement. If we could go back to the Booker T. Washington days and the W.E.B. Du Bois days, where they they had two different ways of looking at the world. And I think, I think Booker T. Washington's was the correct one, which is be your best person, go out there and you educate yourself to, to have a remunerative job, be a productive member of the community and the rest will fall into place. Well, well, the other man, I think, who had socialist tendencies thought that the ideal was to acquire political power and through political power, you'd be able to uh, trickle down some of those benefits to the regular population, which, of course, never works. It never works. If it did work, Greece would be the richest <clears throat> country in the world. We were, we were one of the most politically active populations. And in the 80s, in the 90s, were. Uh, putting in government, socialist governments, and yet it's, uh, if this would solve our problems, then <coughs> Greece would be the Hong Kong of the, of the, of, or the Switzerland of the world. Small pause for Super Chats. Thank you very much, Zohemian. Jo, jo thank you. And thank you also, Marilyn. She says, great topic. I love Thomas Sowell. So we love Thomas Sowell as well, but uh, now it's time for, to say what is my problem with Thomas Sowell. So, and why I don't, I think he cannot change the culture. So he's so good with facts, but what is his philosophical outlook? His philosophical outlook is what I would call empiricism. So actually, and this is not necessary. So focusing <coughs> on facts is not a bad thing. So famously when asked, why did you stop being, what made you, uh, what was your wake up call for stop being a Marxist, Thomas Sowell said, facts. And this is all good, but here's the problem. For Thomas Sowell, facts in a way cannot be translated to, let's say, universal moral imperatives. So for example, you can hear him say, there are not solutions, there are only trade-offs. This is one of his famous uh, lines. Or economics start from scarcity and the problem with politicians is that they forget this. Or you can hear him saying that, well, the leftist point of view is very nice in theory. The problem is facts so that they don't work in real life. 
Now, there is one context that all this makes sense, that of course we begin by facts. But Thomas Sowell, in his hesitancy to draw moral conclusions from these uh, facts, leaves himself, not himself only, but leaves unanswered the moral question. So is capitalism good because, quote, it works? I would say it's the opposite. It works because it's based on moral principles that are compatible with who we are as human beings and all that stuff. Thomas Hollard is not going to take these steps. So he's very, very cautious not to take the step to the moral defense of capitalism. I mean, he does it sometimes in passing. For example, that famous quote, uh, why is it fair for, why is it greed for me to make more money, but not greed for you to want my money? But he doesn't push it a bit better to go to the moral, uh, to go to the moral <clears throat> essence. So that I would say is, uh, is my problem with, uh, with Thomas Sowell. And no, there are solutions. Not everything is a trade-off because something shouldn't be traded. So for example, your right to your life or to your property shouldn't be quote traded, even if it produced quote better results. So am I being too strict with uh, Thomas Olmark? No, I think this is a problem with conservatism in general. I think that came out in the debate that Iran had on uh, on Friedman, Lex Friedman, with Iran. Uh, uh, I forget his Hazon, last name. Yeah, Hazon. Uh, yeah, that 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 guy um, divides the world into rationalists and empiricists. With empiricists, um, empiricism being embraced by the uh, by the right, by the conservatives, and rationalism being embraced by the left. And of course, Euron Brook pointed out that that's a false dichotomy, uh, that we need not have these floating abstractions, which uh, attract the left, but are not connected to reality, nor, nor, is, nor is it about just dis, disconnected uh, series of events or, or things that happen in the world that we can't integrate into principles. It's a combination of the two. We, we acquire principles by these uh, empirical observations. Um, I think I think Thomas Sowell uh, attempts to do that in his visions, his two conflicting visions of society that he talks about um, in some of his work, uh, primarily in the, in the vision of the anointed when he's sort of lambasting the academic uh, left and talks about their vision versus the tragic vision. So I think he tries to encapsulate all of the 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 realistic perspective of man the, the perspective that he assumes the founding fathers had with the tragic vision of life <laughs> um, i don't know if you want to define those terms for people or or what but i think that's his version of 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 a principle tell us a bit more though why tragic because i think it's important yeah i, I mean i i i'm assuming you 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 may have observed something different and more deeply than me about this the, the tragic vision just doesn't it do, it doesn't assume perfection it doesn't assume moral perfection in human beings it understands they're capable of error and 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 or evil and because of this uh it becomes a part of the context of how we reason about social systems economics pretty much everything so it's it's a it's a, an attempt to uh, not idealize man, but to put his feet on the ground and show him for what he is. Would you say that's correct? 
Yeah, sorry, I lost you for a second. My connection was off for a second. So I think that's his vision. And this is a vision that was criticized by Ayn Rand in this way. She says, so what are you concerned with saying is that the reason why we can't have, let's say, socialism or equality is because we're imperfect. So would this mean that if we were perfect and, of, for example, our central planners would be morally without any flaw, then socialism would work? So she makes this criticism, I think, in, uh, in conservatism and obituary. And this is indeed the case with uh, the vibe you often take, get from Thomas All that I wish things could be better, but they're not better. And in this world as it is, we have to make trade-offs and therefore freedom works. That's not A, I don't think this is why freedom works. B, that's not an inspiring vision. People are not yeah. going to go to the barricades for this vision. So all the respects for Thomas Sowell, great influence on me, a huge influence on me as it is he's on you. But I think this is his limit. He's very, very, very good. A very good researcher, a very good communicator. Not as good in, uh, in his philosophical uh, starting points and in his philosoph the implication of his work in philosophical terms. And Enric says, thank you very much for your contribution, Enric. Sowell is excellent at roving conclusions out of fact. Still, it's the morality of altruism that he supersedes for most, exactly. Even if you go with these facts, even if I, like I've gone with these facts, I've seen it with my university students. They nod, you know, they scratch their head. Tomorrow they forget them. Why? Yeah, because... Now, yeah, like as you were saying before, Thomas Sowell doesn't, doesn't defend capitalism on moral grounds. And Walter Williams did attempt to uh, defend capitalism on moral grounds, but using a different ethics than Rand's revolutionary ethics. For example, Walter Williams would say, look, capitalism is about service. And, you, and my certificate of service is that dollar that I earned. That dollar is proof that I provided a value to the world. Now that's a very interesting way to look at, of looking at it. And it's, 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 a, it's a very clear um, and homespun way of getting people to understand that, oh, well, okay, I see how things work in a, in a free exchange society. We provide values and exchange these values, but it's doing it from a different perspective than Rand, who doesn't make any apologies for the fact that you're doing it for yourself, <laughs> for that's your own why, growth and well-being. That's why we said, Mark, that objectivism, if we want to make a martial arts parallel, is the BJJ of philosophy. It's the one system that can beat all other systems. I mean, if you're Thomas Sowell, you know, you're good. Let's say you're a good striker. Someone's going to be better. They're going to do something else. Objectivism is the system that has the answers in a way, the philosophical system that has the answers to all other systems. And uh, with that, I will leave the parting words to you again. The topic was your idea, and I really enjoyed today's episode. So thank you for your suggestion, and I will leave the last word to you. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a very worthy intellectual, uh, and despite the fact that he's embraced to some degree by the right and the conservatives, um, he has so much more to offer than I think even the conservatives mine from him, particularly with the most important issues that are at the forefront of our arguments today with respect to race, income inequality, um, and, and disparities between cultures. Um, he unabashedly tells the truth. It's, it's what you need to, to read. And it's a great stepping stone 
for even advancing further in objectivism. So read him, uh, devour him. He's written a lot, he's prolific, so you'll take a lot of time reading. And uh, I will finish uh, with a suggestion in terms of where to start with Thomas Sowell. So I suggested some books if you're interested in race, but most people these days don't consume books. So if you want to start from somewhere, so Thomas Sowell is, uh, has been employed in the Hoover Institute and the Hoover Institute has a very, has one of the best interviewers in the world that I know is uh, Peter Robinson, who is the producer and the presenter of a show called Uncommon Knowledge. So if love you- Love that show. To, sorry? Great. I love that show. It's a great show. It's a great show. It's a great show. So if you go to YouTube and put Uncommon Knowledge, Thomas Sowell, again, because he works at Hoover Institute, Wherever Thomas Sowell has a new book, he goes there and he discusses it. There are quotes from the book. So go there and start uh, getting the rabbit hole. It's going to be worth of your time, particularly those of you who haven't seen any Thomas Sowell, because I think he's more powerful in a way when he talks, although he's also his books are powerful. So I don't know. Sometimes I wish I could write like Thomas Sowell. So, but yeah. his interviews are also very, very good. And last comment from Marilyn. Thanks for the topic, Mark. And thank you, Marilyn, for your contribution. Hey, I just wanted to say, I do think there's an important book for people to read if they vote, if, if they're in a country where they vote, um, that I think will help make um, their choices much more clear. And that is Basic Economics. I think his book, Basic Economics, every voter should read. Um, it gives you a, a fairly decent sense, not from the necessarily the deep moral perspective that Rand could provide with capitalism, the unknown ideal, but certainly a very clear sense of what drives economics and why the entrance of politics and economics is not a good thing. And if you have that, at least in your arsenal, uh, you won't vote badly anymore. Good. Upcoming shows, 9 p.m. UK time. So this is, is promising to be one of the most exciting HBTVs with Harry Binswager because he's discussing Jordan Peterson. So uh, 9 p.m., tune in uh, the ARC UK YouTube channel. Also become members to support the good work ARC UK is doing and to have more of these uh, shows, more of this content. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you to our viewers. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you.